You're listening to another life-transforming message from Awakened Church with campuses in San Diego and Salt Lake City. To find out more about us, go to awakenedchurch.com. I'm going to do something uh, a little different uh, this week than probably normal church, which is God sent me to be a scout to the front lines. Uh, to tell you about what's happening in the battle for religious freedom in our country. And if you want a, a, a chapter, a verse, or whatever to go back through, I encourage you to go back through Joshua 1, where God over and over says, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous. Now, Israel was about to go into the promised land, but they had to be strong and courageous to get there. And I think that's exactly the time we're in right now. We've got to be strong and courageous with what's going on around us. So let me, let me start with the basics. Uh, what's First Liberty? First Liberty is the largest legal organization in the country that all we do is religious freedom. So let's say a lot of people probably heard, you might have heard about our Navy SEALs. We represent 35 Navy SEALs who are really being persecuted right now because they asked their legal right under the law for a religious accommodation to the vaccine mandate. And the result of that is they're being told they could be court-martialed, their family is being abused, all kinds of things that are illegal are happening. Well, what do you do if you're a 25-year-old who's a Navy SEAL, who's given everything for your country, and now the government is coming against you? Do you pull out hundreds of thousands of dollars you have in the account to hire attorneys? No, you don't have that. So First Liberty comes in, we bring the top litigators in the country, they all donate their time, so that when we win for these Navy SEALs, which we plan to win for these Navy SEALs, we don't just win for them, but we set a precedent that protects every person who serves in our military. Now, how did I get involved in this? Back when I was in high school, I knew my gifts were in analytical thinking and speaking, and I thought, well, I either need to be a pastor or a lawyer. And people said, isn't that like a God or Satan choice to be a pastor or a lawyer? And uh, I analyzed my DNA, and I realized I would probably do better at dispensing justice rather than mercy, so I'd probably make a better lawyer than a pastor. And I went to law school, and I should have been an average law student, intelligence-wise, and my heart was for ministry. So I donated my time at my church. I led the discipleship ministry for the college students. This is a really bad plan intellectually, because if you're average, then everybody else is studying 24-7, and you're not. That's kind of a bad idea. But when the grades came back, I was making all the high grades. And it was God's way to say, I want you to use law, but I want you to keep your heart for ministry. So I got out, a clerk for a federal judge, which you do for one year. You sort of research, write opinions. You know what it's like now to be on the other side of the bench. You know what's influential, what's not, how things work. So after that one year, you can pretty much name your job with any major law firm. So I had all the offers, and I sat in my office, and I thought, God, I just feel like I'd suffocate if I went to be a regular lawyer. I just don't feel like that's what God's calling me to do. And I remember thinking, well, what do you want to do? I thought, well, you need to, I want to use my legal skills because the Lord showed me I should do that. But I want to help pastors and churches and religious freedoms and our founding principles. And I'd even like to go to seminary part-time. And I laughed because there was no job to pay you to do those things. And two weeks later, two guys I'd never met in my life, partners with major national law firms, called me and they said, look, will you come to lunch? I said, sure. At lunch, they said, look, we started donating our time for religious freedom. We're getting so many calls now, it's hurting our ability to make a living. So we were wondering, would you be willing to come on, do legal cases, help pastors, churches, religious freedoms, and our founding principles, and you can even go to seminary part-time if you want. 
Now, being in my mid-20s, maybe a little immature in my faith, I said, let me pray about it. Like, that wasn't an answer to prayer. And, uh, and they said, how much do you need to live on? I was making 28000 as a federal clerk. They pitched in out of their pocket. We started a nonprofit. 32 years later, First Liberty is the largest legal organization in the country. And all we do is religious freedom. God knew what had to be created and had to be built up for this time. And so one of the things I want to start with is, is religious freedom really that important? You know, people who aren't people of faith might question it. Well, they shouldn't, because if they lose religious freedom, they'll lose all their freedoms. It's why our founders called it our first freedom. But I find that most believers don't understand it either. They say, yeah, I'm for religious freedom because I want my religious freedom to live out my faith. It's so much bigger than that. What happens when you lose religious freedom is incredible evil comes into your country, usually murders, uh, just massive suffering. And the best thing, I think people are beginning to see this, Marxism, for instance, when it seeps into a country as it's seeping into the United States, the first thing it has to do is remove the church. It's a competing ideology. If you look, there's a great book out called uh, Live Not By Lies, and uh, it's by Rod Dreher, and he interviews these people from former communist countries, from the former Soviet Union, from Poland, from Hungary, from Czechoslovakia, from all these different places. And what they describe is what happens there is as soon as Marxism come in, the priests get killed, the church gets moved out because these are competing philosophies. And so the question in the book is, what do you do about this? What, what, how do you overcome this? And, and by the way, every one of these people being interviewed says they're terrified at what they're seeing right now in the United States. The answer to what you do is live not by lies, which is Alexander Solzhenitsyn's last essay before he was banned from the Soviet Union. And he says, totalitarian regimes always exist on lies and everybody has to go along. And if enough people, not a majority, just enough people will stand and speak the truth, even if they suffer, it collapses. And it tells the story of country after country of how that's exactly what happened. Who do you think these people are that are willing to stand and speak the truth and suffer? Okay, it's people who know the Lord. So this is why this is such an important battle. Well, that being such an important battle, how are we doing in the United States? Well, we're in a war right now over religious freedom. 11 years ago, we had 48 cases. Last year, we had 321 cases. This year, we're going to have over 700 cases. The attacks are increasing more than I've ever seen. And we don't have to like look too far for what I'm talking about. Let's look at what just happened during COVID. What happens when mayors and governors all of a sudden get power they've never had in their lifetime? What's the flashpoint? What's the legal battle? It's churches and synagogues being shut down all across the country right? We just saw this. And when that happened, we knew going into this that this was going to be very difficult. We knew there was no precedent in the history of our country about whether you have religious freedom in a pandemic, about whether the First Amendment applies. We, we knew that this was going to be very difficult to go in front of a federal judge and say, we want you to open this church for an hour on Sunday. And meanwhile, on the other side is a governor saying, I'm trying to save millions of people's lives. That's a hard win. And so we prayed. We said, Lord, we don't want to create a bad precedent. We want to create the first good precedent. And we waited, and hundreds of churches and synagogues were calling us and saying, you've got to help us. You won't believe what they're doing. And finally, we got the call about Easter, uh, right before Easter a year and a half ago from On Fire Christian Church. 
And they said, you know what? We wanted to find a way to celebrate Easter together and be safe. And so they came up with the idea of driving in their cars in their church parking lot the pastor could speak over a radio frequency into the cars. And I'm not a CDC expert, but of course, I don't know that the CDC is much of an expert this day either. But I'm pretty sure you don't pass, pretty sure you don't pass the coronavirus from one automobile to another. Pretty safe, right? And the city said they would criminally prosecute anybody who had their car in the church parking lot. Then the governor said they were going to send police officers to every church that Easter weekend. Any church that had a car in the parking lot, their license plate would be written down. They would be visited at their home by police and quarantined for 14 days. We said, okay, we're now in China. This is the case. And we filed on Good Friday in federal court for a permanent injunction to stop this. We got a great judge by the name of Justin Walker. He starts out his opinion. You ought to read it sometime. It's great. By saying, I I am witnessing something I never thought I would even read in some sort of dystopian novel. He said, an American city is criminalizing an Easter gathering. He said, this is irrational. It's unreasonable. It's outrageous. It's unconstitutional. And it'll never happen while I'm a federal judge in this country. And, and you got to remember, at this time, the whole country, the visuals we were getting was a father throwing a baseball with his son in the park, being handcuffed. You know, a guy coming off the beach with a surfboard with nobody in sight being arrested. And we were wondering, is the Constitution suspended? Is, is it over? This was, we called the shot heard around the world for the second American revolution that I don't care what the situation is in this country. This country was built by people who gave their lives for religious freedom. Religious freedom and the constitution apply fully. And, but our goal wasn't to just open up churches so you could drive in the parking lot. Our goal was to get people back. So we filed, the next case was Tabernacle Baptist Church. This is a church in a rural community, large facility, plenty of room for distancing and everything. And again, you could go to the liquor store. You could go to the Home Depot. The gambling parlors were open. The one place you couldn't go is an hour on Sunday. It's just outrageous. There's no rationale for that. So we filed a lawsuit on behalf of this church and we not only won the injunction on behalf of this church, but before we were finished, the attorney general for the state, an African-American by the name of Daniel Cameron, wonderful attorney general, joined us in suing his own governor. And by the time we were finished, we ended up with a statewide injunction protecting every church and synagogue in the state to open up and freely meet. But on, and we won every case we filed during COVID, churches, synagogues, we won all of them. But the problem is no cases anywhere made it as a merits case to the Supreme Court. So there is no precedent. There is no decision that in the future is going to tell us whether the government can control the churches. We're still in this battle. But the battle is not just during COVID. I mean, we've had 
tons of cases outside of COVID. We've got churches who are being attacked in all kinds of different ways. One example is uh, uh, Canaan Baptist, a uh, typical example, small African-American church. The city comes in and says, we're going to take your property. And they say, we're going to build our sanctuary on this property. Say, so, yeah, but, but we want to build a fire station. There's a fire station across the street. Yeah, but we like that property better. They just figured they could push them around because they didn't have a lot of money. By the time we brought in some of the top litigators in the country, the city decided they didn't want the church property anymore, and they backed off. And Canaan uh, just called us to let us know that they're building the new sanctuary, and they're naming it after the lead counsel who donated all of his time on the case. But these are the kind of things that are, I mean, you're having to fight over whether you can have a sanctuary. We've got synagogues in Irvine, California, in Houston, in New York, all under attack that we're having to defend and fight just for their right to worship, okay? And it's not just churches and synagogues, it's religious organizations, right? I mean, the president of the United States just issued an edict in the last week, taking over every business with 100 or more employees and telling 84 million workers what their healthcare decisions would be, that includes every religious organization in the country and every church. Okay, well, we filed a lawsuit on Friday on behalf of three different religious organizations saying that doesn't happen in the United States of America. And yesterday, the Federal Court of Appeals issued a stay in our favor, saying we find these issues gravely concerning regarding the Constitution, and we are staying this mandate. Not just synagogues, not just churches, not just religious organizations, but I mean, individually people are under attack too, right? I mean, look at our schools and all that's happening. I mean, probably one of the best examples over the past year is Elizabeth Turner, young lady who had earned the right to be the valedictorian at her school, and people give a valedictory address. It's a personal farewell. That's what it means. And we've all heard all kinds of political things and things said in valedictory addresses, but she crossed the line because she wanted to talk about Jesus. She wanted to talk about her faith. They said that was, quote, inappropriate. Well, she said, There's not, this is not right. She reached out to us because she understood the government can't tell me I can speak, but I can't talk about my faith or Jesus Christ. So by the end of this case, not only did she get up and give her valedictory address and mention Jesus and mention God, but instead of it just being carried to her community, it got carried on national news and reached a lot more people than it ever would have. And another young lady saw that, and she said, they're doing the same thing to me. And she called us, and by the time she was done, she was winning her case. So, I mean, kids at school can't even just be honest and open about their faith, right? The attacks are coming from woke corporations against people, right? Wokeism is really a false religion that attacks Christianity and other faiths. It's like, you have to believe this or we're going to punish you. The only difference from woke religion and you know other religions is woke doesn't believe you are allowed to believe anything different. And we've seen all these people being abused, and we're like, we need the right case to really make a, a, a really big hit on this and to stop this. And so the Lord brought to us a case uh, that we just have started on behalf of two flight attendants at Alaska Airlines. Alaska Airlines, who back eight, nine years ago, used to have little uh, uh, napkins that had scripture verses on it. 
and they lost their way. And they're so woke now that they have planes painted in woke colors and all kinds of things. Well, they, they, they did a website just for employees, and they said, we've got this new legislation that we really love. It's called the Equality Act. And we really want everybody to get behind it. If you don't know what the Quality Act is, it's a federal piece of legislation, one of the most extreme you've ever seen, that strips religious freedom from every American in every situation. It says in every situation, whether it's housing, employment, uh, churches, anything, LGBT wins and religious liberty is not allowed as a defense. And so they sent this out to all their employees and said, we love your feedback or comments. Two of the flight attendants sent in one a question. The other said, you know, I've got concerns. This affects the religious freedom of my church, of everywhere else. So what did Alaska Airlines do? They asked for their feedback. They fired both of the flight attendants. So, you know, we've been looking to get at this somehow. But you know what? It's one thing to be woke. It's another thing to violate federal law. In this country, you can't say we'd like your opinion, but when you express a religious or a Christian opinion, you get fired. That's a violation of federal law. And we have already started the lawsuit on this with the EEOC. And our goal is not just to win on behalf of these. I think we've got it. Yeah, this is one of them. I mean, these are sweet women who now have no job, no employment. Our goal is not just to win on behalf of them, but to leave a mark on Alaska Airlines that sends a signal to every corporation in America, you don't do this to people in the United States of America. So it's not just attacks against churches, individuals, and work, and all these different places. It's also in our military. And again, you've heard about our our Navy SEALs case that you'll probably see filed. Uh, It's already made the press, but it'll probably be filed early next week. But probably one of the most well-knowns is the Shields of Strength case. This is a, a guy who, just a great idea, came up with the idea of having dog tags with scripture verses on them. Because people in the military get scared. There are times they're in situations that are really terrifying. To be able to look down and see Joshua 1.9 that says, Be strong and courageous, says the Lord. I'll be with you. They need that. And really, over the last 10 years, if you, you go into any unit anywhere in the military, you'll find people that have these. But now it's banned. Well, why? Well, we don't have to guess. We got a letter from the administration saying we're not allowing these anybody to have these anymore because it says something religious on it. So you can wear anything around your neck, profanity, anything you want. The one thing you can't wear is a scripture verse. Well, we're not going to stop until every person in the military has a right to wear one of these if they want to wear one of these. And then, you know, uh, this won't surprise you probably, but the attacks are not only just against all these things, but they're attacks even against sharing the gospel. One of, of, I think, my favorite clients uh, this year is Gail Blair. Gail Blair is a woman who slowly was going blind and realized in that process the most important thing to her was that people know about Jesus. So as she's going blind, all of a sudden she realizes, you know, I can't be a nurse anymore. I don't have this interaction with people. What am I supposed to do? And then she realizes I'm in an apartment across the street from a park I'll find my way with my cane across the street every day and I'll sit on a bench and I'll pray that somebody comes nearby and I'll spark up a conversation and I'll hand them a copy of the Gospel of John. And so that's what she did. And then the park banned her from two years from the library or the park because she talked about her faith. So I want you to see the video of Gail Blair and her story.
Nursing was it for me. It was my identity. I did everything. If I could help them get a job or an apartment, my husband says that I am a um, frustrated social worker. <laughs> January 7th, 1984, I actually had been going to a Bible study on the book of John, and uh, it opened my heart to the word of God being the answer, the truth. It was the best day of my life. I actually was born with a genetic disorder, retinitis pigmentosa, and I still continued nursing until I couldn't anymore because of my vision loss. If somebody says, if ever said to me, hey, you could have your eyesight, but you have to, you know, get rid of Jesus, I'd say, no, no deal. Wherever I go, I try to hand this out to people. So it's 21 chapters of the gospel. I get around with my cane to cross the street to go in the park. Going into a park to uh, talk with people is a pleasure, first of all, but knowing that eternal life is real and people don't know that they're in danger, people have been saved in the park. I've had more of a reaction from the staff on, in the park that was not too nice, uh, like they would interrupt me. There's plenty of people to talk to. I don't have to be um, going after anybody. I couldn't. It would be a tripping hazard for me. I was sitting on a bench with a man that I was conversing with. The executive director comes over and he says that he was gonna call the police. That's the start of um, the two-year ban, even from the library, which that was a little bit of a surprise to me, that they would ban me from both the park and the library on passing out one of the 66 books of the Bible that you have in your library that people can check out. Uh, I guess my heart is broken uh, that I can't do what the Lord has told me to do. So if you want to say that, I, I think about daily the lost souls. I think the Lord has positioned me right across from the park. It, it's a divine uh, assignment that I absolutely need to fulfill. It's, it's just a must. So some of you right now are saying, boy, thanks, Jurgen, for bringing the depressing speaker Sunday morning. I was really wanting to hear about all these bad cases. So let me tell you the good news. The good news is we have a method of dealing with this and it's working, has been working for a long time. And that is, if you look at nonprofit legal groups that are out there, and I don't care if they're left-wing or right-wing or what their issue is, they have the same model. Raise as much money as you can raise. Use that money to hire as many attorneys as you can. Put them in an office in D.C. or L.A. or New York and fly them around the country. Cover as many of your cases as you can cover. That's not our model. Our model is there's all these believers who went to law school because they wanted to stand for what was right. They wanted to ride in and save the day and hold the saber and the white horse and do what was right. 30 years later, these are the best litigators at the best law firms in our nation. And they've done honorable work for their clients. 
but they've never gotten to do a case for the kingdom. And so we go and sit down with them. We say, look, if we give you everything you need on our staff, top lawyers from Harvard and all the top law schools, that all they do is religious freedom, and we've got media people, we've got everything you need, are you willing to give your time on one of these cases? They're like, man, I've been waiting 35 years. Sign me up. So can you imagine the first time in their life, all their talent, all their gifts, all their training, everything they've ever learned, is lined up with the kingdom. They have never felt that before. It's kind of unfair, but we now know we have them for the rest of their lives as one of our volunteer attorneys because they got to do another one. And they give cover as the big partner to the younger attorneys who get to taste of what it's like. So if you go through the top 100 law firms in the United States, you'll find most of those law firms don't just donate their time with us. They'll fight each other over who gets to donate their time with us. And the result of that is, originally my goal was, I thought, you know, we can get a lot more for God's resources if we involve these guys. And sure enough, average case, every 10,000 we spend, we get 60,000 donated. Okay, so it's like a, a loaves and the fish, right? It's the six to one multiplication of the resources. But what I didn't count on was the win-loss ratio. If you watch nonprofits, they are fighting big things, monsters, industry, government, something big. That's why they created. If they win 40% of their cases, they're Pretty, pretty good. Our win rate now, 22 years in a row, every single year has been above 90% of our cases. And it's because of God's favor, but it's because this is his method, okay? When we have a lawsuit, and, well, for instance, if you're Ford Motor Company in Detroit and you get sued in L.A., do you think they send their Detroit attorneys to L.A.? No, they do not. Yet that's the way every nonprofit in the country does it but us. If we have a case in Montana, our lawyer lives in Montana. It's from the biggest law firm in Montana. When they go into court and look at the judge, they were in first grade together and lost a tooth together. <laughs> the ACLU guy coming in from New York City, he's playing an away game. He doesn't understand that community, Okay. We could never do this, create these teams of the most powerful lawyers in the country within 30 minutes if we didn't have the largest law firm in the country called the Body of Christ. So these attorneys that never get to do a case for the kingdom get to do it, okay? These people that could never afford this type of representation get the best in the country. The result is all these victories that create a precedent that protects everybody in the body of Christ. This is how it's supposed to work, right? And so normally, this is where I would say, okay, that's all I need to tell you. We're winning our cases. Yes, the attacks are greater. We're still winning. But then about five years ago, God started to do something different. And I started to say as I was speaking, you know, I feel like we might be able to change the future. And about two years ago, I stopped saying that because I, I started saying, God is changing the future. We are changing the future right now. What do I mean? Five years ago, we don't care. We're nonpartisan. Whoever's in office, we're going to push for religious freedom. So we were preparing for a Hillary Clinton presidency. And then this Trump guy won, which is a real shock to a lot of people. And so we had to reanalyze, how do we advance religious freedom under him? We immediately saw 132 judicial seats open. This is very unusual. These are lifetime appointments. And God started pressing on us that, you know what? A lot bigger than any one case 
is these judges who are going to be on there for 30 and 40 years. So I want you to vet all these people, make sure that you know everything about everybody, and you push for the best people we can get on the court that will protect religious freedom, that will fight for our Constitution. And that's what we did. And what the result was incredible. I mean, I can't go through the 234 judges that came on the court, but I'm telling you, you, there would be people who would be sitting in this sanctuary. Okay? Example, I've got a picture. I'll just show you one or two. Um, uh, This guy with his hand up, number one in his class, goes to work at one of the biggest law firms in the country, works there for seven years, decides, you know, I want to do something a little more significant. So he leaves to go work in the U.S. Attorney's Office, federal prosecutors, putting away terrorists. Wins an award for putting away terrorists. New attorney general comes in, pulls him off that to work on social justice issues. He's like, I didn't come here for that. So he leaves. Where did he go? He came to work for us as one of our attorneys. At age 38, he became a federal judge for the rest of his life. (laughs) This is a guy that's brilliant, that is committed to scripture more than anybody you'll ever meet, and that would rather die than to turn his back on the Constitution of the United States. And my great-grandchildren, when they come into court, they're going to come into his court. He's going to be there a long time. Who's swearing him in? Jim Ho, probably the smartest lawyer in the country. Okay, clerked under Justice Thomas, Supreme Court, probably will end up on the U.S. Supreme Court. He's now in the Federal Court of Appeals. He was one of our most active volunteer lawyers in the country. And his opinions are leaving a trail of fire, if you read them right now, on what is right, what is good, and what the Constitution says. When you start doing this, what that does is it starts to change the opinions. And so if you, you, know, if you look at the religion clauses, there's two religion clauses, the Free Exercise Clause and Establishment Clause. Both have a really bad case that has caused great damage for 50 years to religious freedom. The Smith case under the Free Exercise Clause, the Lemon case, aptly named, under the Establishment Clause. And if you just said five years ago, can you get rid of those? I said, no, they've been cited for 50 years. We can chip away at them. I'm watching God implode both of these precedents now. And what's happened is, for example, take the uh, Coach Kennedy case. I think you might have heard about Coach Kennedy. He's the coach that was fired for going to a knee to say a 20-second prayer by himself after the football game. Unfortunately for Coach Kennedy, he lives in the Ninth Circuit, which goes through San Francisco. They said coaches are not allowed to pray in public if anyone can see them. Well, that's not the law, but we went to the Supreme Court. They said, hey, there's some more facts we want developed. But the four more conservative justices wrote a concurrence, which is very unusual. And they said, you know, we're disturbed by this case. This is before even Amy Coney Barrett joined the court. They said, but we noticed that the first claim to reach us in this this case was a free speech claim, not the free exercise of religion. Maybe that's because of the Smith decision that has caused so much damage to religious freedom over the last three decades. But we haven't been asked to review that decision yet. Not subtle. They're, they're sending a message. They're ready to open up free exercise for everybody in the country in an incredible way. Same thing under the Establishment Clause. There's this case called Lemon. What does the Establishment Clause say? Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion. What does that mean? We don't want the government to establish a national church. That's what the founders meant. But in 50 years ago, the court said, oh, no, it means so much more than that. It means separation of church and state. It means that if you're offended, you can bring a lawsuit. You can't bring a lawsuit because you're offended. The only thing in our entire lives we've watched that you could bring a lawsuit because you're offended if it was by religion. 
So we've watched attacks on nativity scenes and menorahs and Ten Commandments monuments. Why? Because the founders had any problem with those things? No, because of the Lemon case. So we got this case, the Bladensburg Cross. I think we're going to see a picture. Um, this is a cross that was put up 100 years ago by mothers who lost their sons in World War I. And the American humanist came along, brought a lawsuit. You can't have this cross. It's on government property. And so at the Court of Appeals, one of the judges said, why don't we just cut the arms off the cross? That way nobody will be offended and we won't have to tear it down. They ruled two to one unconstitutional. So we went to the Supreme Court. And instead of just saying, preserve this cross, we said, I think it's time to get rid of lemon. We now had Kavanaugh on the court, Gorsuch on the court. We might have the, the votes. And so we won that case 7-2. But more importantly, 5-4, the justices says we are not following Lemon. That is a sea change for what happened. So for 50 years, we've gone in this hostility to religion direction. We just shifted. The presumption in the law now in every case is that religion and public is presumptively constitutional. It's changing all the lower courts below. The culture is starting to change. We are just at the beginning of restoring religious freedom under both clauses. We're just at the beginning. But I really believe that every American is about to have more religious freedom than they've ever had in their lifetime. And so what can you say that we can pass down to our kids and our grandkids that's even greater than we had? This is it. This is it. And God's doing this. I don't know why he's doing this. I don't know if it's because there's going to be a revival or it's just going to get so hostile that we need the protection, but I know he's doing it. The only thing that could stop it is something really radical like court packing. Court packing, if you don't know what it is, is when you add, when the majority party adds justices to the Supreme Court to just get to the results they want to get to. Now, most people in America are against this. They, they understand it's a bad idea, but they just think it means you're jumping from left to right on the court. It's actually much worse. If you wonder why some of these countries lost their freedom and lost their greatness, like Venezuela and other countries, it's because they did court packing. Because once you do this one time, your country is over. But the reason is, once you do this, you are putting the, the judiciary underneath the political branch. You no longer get a blindfolded lady justice you get whoever's in power decides what justice you get. You no longer have constitutional rights. You have whatever rights the majority party wishes you to have because they can just add justices until they take it away. So it's very dangerous. And I want to show you a video of what was said right going into the new administration, and I'll give you the quick update. President Roosevelt clearly had the right to send to the United States Senate and the United States Congress a proposal to pack the court. But it was a bonehead idea. You'll know my opinion on court packing when the election is over. Now look, I know it's a great question. I'll put together a national commission of scholars and I will uh, ask them to come back to me with recommendations as to how to uh, reform the court system. This is a live ball. Oh, it is a live ball. So we will figure out a way to get something done. Well, let's take a look and see. Everything is on the table. We're going to add five, six, seven, ten seats to the court. Well, I think everything's on the table. Everything is on the table. All of those matters will be on the table. All options are on the table. And as I've said, everything, everything is on the table. Presidents come and go. Supreme Court justices stay for generations. 
So what happened? The president issued an executive order creating a commission to reform the United States Supreme Court. This commission has been meeting. Uh, a bill was filed in the House to add four justices to the Supreme Court. A bill was filed in the Senate to add 203 lower court judges. And this commission will be issuing its report probably in two or three weeks. There is a heavy push to make this happen. We are doing everything in our power to make sure that it doesn't happen. If people are just educated, I don't care what side of the aisle they're on, they realize this is a horrible idea. It was tried in 1936 and 37 by FDR. His own party rose up against him. A thousand letters a day were arriving in U.S. Senate offices because the country said, this is tyranny. You're asking for tyranny in this country. And they stopped it. We've got to stop it. We've got to do everything in our power to stop it. If we do, though, the future is incredible for religious freedom. You know, a few years ago, I was in my office, just read my newspaper, and I saw something I'd never seen. It was senior citizens holding picket signs. And I thought, that's unusual. And I looked, and these seniors had been told they could not pray over their meals in the senior center. They couldn't sing the gospel songs at the piano, and they couldn't meet at a table once a week to study the Bible because that was separation of church and state. And so we had a young attorney who had just started with us out of the military, and I put the newspaper down. I said, let's see if we can help these people. Before I could finish my statement, he's peeling out of the parking lot on the way to the senior center. He meets with them. They said, look, we're the has-beens. We're the nobodies. We have no power in this town. There's these four people in the city council that control everything said, we never knew anybody to help us, much less lawyers for free. And so this attorney comes back to me and he says, this city doesn't deserve to be worn. They should be destroyed. And I said, no, no, no. We're a Christian organization. We're going to send them this thing about the Constitution that they might want to follow. Their response was, government's not allowed. I mean, religion's not allowed in a government building. We're not backing down. So we had a press conference. And I was at a podium like this. I had all the seniors behind me. And at the end, I did something you're probably not supposed to do, but if the Holy Spirit leads, you lead. And so I just said, does anybody want to say anything? Wow. And at the end of the line is a guy, Barney. He's got a cowboy hat, a bolo tie, a Western suit, his only suit, and cowboy boots. He walks up and he says, I fought World War II for these freedoms, and I ain't going into the corner to pray. They can arrest me long as it says what is rested for, rested for praying. He turns around, walks in the back of the line again. And I get a call about an hour later from Fox producers saying, we want the guy in the hat on TV. <laughs> he ends up all over the press. We end up in the U.S. Senate. We end up winning the case. We want a permanent injunction, never to interfere with them again. They're praying over their meals. But my favorite part was what happened after the lawsuit. Everybody in the city watched the powerless seniors beat the four all-powerful city council members. So they held a recall election, and they threw all four of those people out of office. And then about a, about a year later, I got a postcard from one of the seniors because she wanted me to know that she was now one of the new city council members. The, the enemy tells us all the time, tells you all the time, you, I can't do anything. I don't have any power. We're the body of Christ. We have all the power. We just need to be faithful. We need to be faithful. And if we do, we can win this battle. And we will win this battle. Now, you might say, well, what can I do? Well, we've got a, I've got a deal you can text to get the info. I'd love for you to be praying for these cases. When you see a Gail Blair or a Coach Kennedy have their day in court, I want prayer coming. 
right? I want you to educate other people. If we're winning these cases and nobody knows, what good is it? But if you send this out and say, we're winning, look, look at this person, this person, it's going to embolden people to stand for their faith and to speak out. The last thing you can do is what I talked about earlier, live not for lies. Okay, we got craziness going on everywhere right now. People are saying things that we know are not true over and over again. We know that there's a man and a woman. Okay, we know that, but who will say it? Who will speak the truth? It doesn't take a majority. Okay, and it's the body of Christ that's gonna have to stand up or we're gonna lose our freedoms. And so we can all do that in our different ways. Thank you for the privilege of being at this church. God bless you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our locations, team, and what we do here at Awakened Church, go to awakenedchurch.com.